Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, starting chapter 4, and we'll observe chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach by the sea. A very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and and sat in it on the sea, And the whole crowd was besides the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprung up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no roots in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the world, the word, and it and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The kingdom of God will be established on earth. You can be certain of this. We have seen this kingdom being established in the hearts of God's people for the past 2,000 years. We're seeing it today as the Word of God is preached, as the Word of God is heard, and as the Word of God is heeded. This week, we turn to a new section in the Gospel of Mark. So far, we've been told about Jesus' teaching, but we haven't heard much of it. Today we'll turn to Jesus' teaching, 
20 verses of it. More specifically, today we're going to start considering Jesus' parables. A parable is a story, an illustration, a metaphor that draws a comparison between a common reality that is relatable to the listener and a deeper spiritual insight from the teacher. Parables sometimes are designed to instruct, but parables can also be designed to conceal. At times, the same parable will do both, as we see in our parable today. Parables can leave us puzzled. Parables can also leave us awestruck. Today we'll turn to one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the sower. On the surface, this parable might sound like just good advice for evangelism or perhaps even encouragement when we don't get the response when we, uh, we, we would expect when we evangelize. But friends, the parable of the sower is greater than mere evangelistic advice or encouragement. It is not to say that evangelism is not a part of the parable. Of course it is. But this parable is about more than evangelism. The parable of the sower is about the building of the kingdom of God. Really, this parable is the fleshing out of Jesus' central statement earlier on in the book in Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. For the first time in the gospel of Mark, since Mark 1.15, we hear the expression, the kingdom of God again. This is the first time we see since the beginning of this book, the mentioning of the kingdom of God. It is not to say that we have not seen the kingdom of God. We have, and we have seen it powerfully. The kingdom of God is God's rule. It is the rule of God in the hearts of God's people. But the kingdom of God manifests itself in a physical way as Jesus transforms lives through the teaching and through his power. This was the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago. This is the kingdom of God today. In our setting for today, Jesus is back at the Sea of Galilee. The crowd around him is so large that he has to get on a boat to teach them. So he begins teaching them in parables. So as we consider the parable of the sower today, we're going to consider four things. We're going to consider the seed. We're going to consider the sower. We're going to consider the secret. And finally, we'll consider the soil. 
So let's consider the seed. Although the interpretation of parables can sometimes be obscure and inconclusive, I am 100% sure I got the interpretation of this parable right. No, I'm not being boastful. No, I am not trusting my interpretive skills too much. My certainty rests in the fact that this parable comes with a great feature, Jesus' own interpretation. So I am certain, for once, that I am going to interpret a parable correctly. I, I say this jokingly. We can have certainty of what a parable is saying. So what does Jesus say the seed is? Well, look at verse 14. The sower sows the word. The seed of the kingdom of God is the word of God proclaimed. In other words, the kingdom of God begins in a seed form through the proclamation of the word of God. Friends, the word of God is powerful. It creates life. It builds the kingdom of God. Churches may have many strategies for ministry, but if their strategy does not center on the proclamation of God's word, they will fail. Churches must center themselves on the proclamation of the word. This is how we began as a church on April 24, 1960. A group of 61 men, women, and children, some of you are here with us today, gathered together in West Melbourne to worship God and hear His Word preached. And friends, 62 years later, here we are. The kingdom of God, men and women, with God's truth in their hearts, living by the teaching and the power of the Word of Christ. The Word of God is the breath of God that comes into the inanimate heart of man and gives him life. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall the word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friends, this passage is not simply saying that when we read the Bible, we get something out of it, although that is true. This passage is saying that the Word of God saves sinners. That's what this passage is saying. When the Word of God lands in the heart of a sinner, that sinner is saved. Because the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God, the seed, puts the kingdom of God in the hearts of sinners. This is how the kingdom sprouts. This is how the kingdom grows but what about the sower who is the sower the sower 
is anyone who proclaims the word of God. Not just from the pulpit. Not just from a Sunday school classroom. Not just the professional clergy. Not just the street evangelist. Anyone who carries the word of life is the sower. Of course, Jesus himself is the first sower. It is his words that established the kingdom. We heard this read today as the disciples would leave Jesus. He asks the twelve and Peter says, to whom shall we go? Because you hold the words of eternal life. Jesus himself establishes the kingdom through his word, but not only that, he is the word that the sower proclaims. Christ is the center of scripture and revelation. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God, Colossians 3.16, this is instruction for our worship gathering, for our corporate service. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now you'd expect the preaching to come, right? No, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. So Christ, the word of God, Souls the word. And he calls us to do the same. At the heart of the Christian message, there is not a call to religion. There is not a call to patterns of behavior. There is not a call to a movement or anything else. At the heart of the message we proclaim, there is Christ. When we sow the seed... We sow Christ. This is why Paul summarizes the contents of his entire preaching as he says, but we preach Christ crucified. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of God to a lost world. We carry in our hearts the message that gives the right of citizenship in God's heavenly city to all who would believe. Our mission is evangelism, and evangelism is the proclamation of Christ. An evangelist offers not arguments or testimony or tract or an invitation to church, although these are means to an end. An evangelist ultimately offers Christ. Our goal is to share the message of the gospel until Christ is born in the heart of the unbeliever. I remember meeting with a young couple for weeks a few years ago as it seemed like the young lady was coming to faith in Christ. Her husband was a believer. Finally, at a point after explaining the message of the gospel and after she heard the preached word for months, 
I asked her if she had understood the gospel, and she said, I've always understood there is a God, but I never understood how we come to Him. But now I understand that we come to the Father through the Son. Friends, Christ was born in her heart. She entered the kingdom of God because she received the seed. She followed the profession of faith with baptism shortly after. Our goal is to share the message of the gospel indiscriminately. Did you notice that the sower doesn't sow the seed on one kind of soil only? No. As ambassadors of the kingdom of God, every person we interact with is a potential new citizen of God's kingdom. The proclamation of Christ is not the job of the pastor or those who are more gifted in evangelism alone. The proclamation of Christ is not optional for believers. No, every disciple of Christ is an evangelist. Some of us will stand on street corners and will proclaim the gospel. Others will meet with their unbelieving friends at a coffee shop and read the gospel of John with them. Others will invite their unbelieving neighbors for dinner and will lead them into gospel conversations at their home. A real commitment to evangelism demonstrates, reveals genuine faith. When we give ourselves to evangelism, we find greater assurance that we ourselves have come to receive the message of Christ. But as appealing and as sweet as the message of the gospel is, not all receive it, right? Some reject it. But why? Well, let's consider Jesus' comments in verses 10 through 13 now. Now, this is probably in a different setting. Because as Jesus is proclaiming the parable, the multitudes are there. At this point, Jesus finds himself alone with his disciples. So there's probably some time that takes place between verses 9 and 10. Things got quite interesting here. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we find what commentators call a Markin sandwich. It's a very technical term. Verses 1 through 9 contain the parable of the sower, that's the bread, right? Verses 14 through 20 is the other bread where we find the interpretation of that parable. But in the middle of these two, we find the filling uh, where uh, we, we hear of Jesus' interactions with the twelve in a smaller group of his disciples. This group of disciples asked Jesus to explain his parable. We've seen all along in Mark a distinction between a group of insiders and a group of outsiders. The insider would be Levi, the tax collector, an outsider, would be 
the Pharisees, the scribes. In verse 11, Jesus explains that the insiders having, have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but the outsiders do not understand the secrets. Notice that the insiders are not the insiders because they are intellectually superior. The secret of the kingdom is not a riddle that the mentally astute discern while the intellectually challenged do not. No, the secret is given by revelation. His very disciples did not understand his parables either. Notice that Jesus begins the parable in verse 3 with the word listen or hear. The same word is used in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is not speaking here of the physical action of hearing. He's talking about hearing in the Spirit. The message is received by hearing, but hearing means hear, hear, and heed. Trust and obey. But the outsiders, they hear, right? They hear the message. But, but to them, it sounds like, you, you know, the adults speaking in Charlie Brown cartoons, right? That's what they hear. They, they don't hear the message spiritually, do they? No. For them, Jesus says, everything is a parable. Interesting statement from Jesus here. For Jesus to receive his message physically but not spiritually is the equivalent of receiving a parable. For Jesus to receive a parable but not to receive the secret behind the parable, to hear and not heed is a sign of judgment. But for the insiders... The parable is not judgment. Why? Because they received the parable, but they received the parable along with him who is able to interpret the parable, Jesus. They receive the teachings of Jesus, and they receive Jesus himself. Jesus then goes on to quote from the prophet Isaiah, Chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, as he explains the nature of the outsiders. In Isaiah 6, you might remember Isaiah comes to the temple and he sees a throne. Right? And then he recognizes his, his sinfulness and God provides for him an atonement. Right? Something to purify him of his sin. And then he commissions, commissions him. Isaiah 6 is the commissioning of Isaiah to ministry, his prophetic ministry. He's told by God that he will proclaim the good news, but most will only hear his words, but not perceive them. They will not receive his words. In other words, most of the people who would hear the message of Isaiah would not come to faith. Jesus is here making a parallel between himself, his ministry, and the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, 
that some will hear the gospel and believe, but the majority of those that hear the proclamation of Christ will reject it. And that would be to their condemnation. Matthew 7, 13, 14, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then Jesus says, perhaps the most puzzling statement in this entire section. He says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is still a quotation from Isaiah 6. But what could this mean? Well, let me say this. Anyone who seeks the forgiveness of Christ finds it. But Jesus' purpose here was not to redeem the outsiders, but the insiders. Jesus' purpose of redemption and revelation was specifically geared towards his followers, the insiders. That's what Jesus is saying here. They would build his kingdom, but the outsiders, those were his enemies. They opposed the establishment of his kingdom. The ultimate example of those who were outside were the scribes and the Pharisees. In John 8, we see what is perhaps the most epic face-off between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And there, he tells them why, ultimately, they don't believe or follow Jesus. He says, why do you not understand what I say? Here's why. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. That's why they reject Jesus' message. Because their father is the devil. Friends, the whole Bible gives us only two seeds. The seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent are those who are born of the devil. The seed of the woman are those who are born of Christ. And only those who are born of Christ will hear and heed the teachings of Christ. Now, I don't believe that this group of insiders and outsiders here in this passage has no fluidity, okay? We know that at this point, Judas Iscariot was on the inside, but he would end up on the outside, okay? We know that Mary, James, and Jude, Jesus' family, at this point, they were outside, but they would end up on the inside. 
I do believe that Jesus' atonement accomplishes its purpose every time Christ died for the church. I believe that it is, uh, I believe that this is what it means that God's word never comes back void because God's word is powerful. Uh, when God purposes salvation, he accomplishes it. But until we truly know, or until one truly demonstrates final reprobation, from our perspective, there is always hope that someone might come to know the Lord. So we sow the seed. Sometimes we can be so struck by the question, why wouldn't God reveal his word to this person or that person? That we don't even realize that the question, why would God reveal himself to anyone? Is much more puzzling. Without specific revelation, we receive exactly what we deserve, condemnation. But when God intervenes, okay, here's what's puzzling. When God intervenes, he redeems his enemies. It is astonishing. God's, God forgives many. Christ gives himself as a ransom for many. And at the end of the day, the puzzling question is not, why doesn't God save everybody, but why would God save anybody if what we deserve is condemnation? So friends, when it comes to God's salvation, there is only one answer. It is grace. That's the answer. And we should be puzzled by the grace of God demonstrated to us. We should cry for all eternity, undeserving, undeserving, and yet I received it. It is through his grace in the life of his own that he establishes his kingdom. He says to his disciples, to you has been given the secret. Now, it seems like Jesus' disciple were, disciples were not understanding Jesus' parable either, but they had something the outsiders didn't. Jesus. They were not smarter, smarter than the outsiders. They were not chosen because of their ability to discern spiritual things. They were chosen so they could learn from Jesus the mysteries of his kingdom. And so they would also proclaim it. Jesus implies here that there is something particularly special about this parable. Did you notice here? He says, if you can't understand this parable, how will you understand all parables. So this is a central, uh, th this is kind of the Rosetta Stone of all parables. Why is this parable, why is the parable of the sower so important? The parable of the sower doesn't give us mere tips or encouragements for evangelism, as I said earlier. No, the parable of the sower reveals the goal, the purpose of the kingdom of God. And what is the secret, the goal, the purpose of the kingdom of God? The secret of the kingdom of God is that through the preaching of the gospel, the pre preaching of God's word, the lives of those who respond with faith and repentance, okay, I'm taking this from Mark 1.15, will be transformed and they will bear much fruit worthy of eternity. 
Okay, so now let's turn to the soils as we conclude today. The promise of a coming king with a coming kingdom was fervent in the hearts of the Jews. Their history was filled with wars, exile, subjugation. The 400 years leading up to the coming of Christ, they experienced domination by kings and kingdoms much stronger than them. They were oppressed. They expected a Messiah to come and deliver them from the physical and the political oppression they experienced. So, Jesus came. But he came in an unexpected, unassuming way, humble, in a manger, obscure from the religious and political powers. When he calls his disciples to himself, he called the common, the non-influential, average man. And now as he's laying out his secret plan for the redemption of the world. His plan doesn't seem very impressive at all, does it? His parable is not about a man of war. His parable is about a sower. And the sower scatters seed. You don't need much skill to do this. But even this sower doesn't seem very skilled in what he's doing. The way he works out his plan doesn't seem very impressive, does it? The land is not plowed. So one out of every four seeds only fall on good ground. Seems wasteful, seems unplanned. It doesn't seem powerful. What could this possibly mean? Friends, God is not weak or unwise. God's purpose from eternity past will come to fruition. With this parable, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God does not follow the wisdom of men. It may seem unassuming today, but one day... No one will escape it. This one seed seems small right now, but it will yield 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Much fruit will come from this unassuming beginning. So let's now spend a little bit of time just assessing each soil. In verse 15, we see the seeds that fall on the soil along the path. The soil represents a heart that is hardened by the gospel. You know, growing up, we played soccer a lot, and it's great to play soccer on a field that has plenty of grass, right? And it's well-trimmed and it's well-kept. But whenever you observe on a field the place where the goalie stands... Grass doesn't often grow there. 
because a soccer team has 10 players that move much and one player that does not move much at all. And as that goalie steps on that piece of soil, that soil becomes hardened. And water doesn't penetrate it. And even seeds, if they're to fall on it, they don't go into it. As people walk on a path, the soil becomes so compact that nothing enters it. This is the heart of an unbeliever. This is a hardened heart. This person doesn't even indicate a false conversion. This person here hears the gospel and rejects it immediately. This is the militant atheist. This is the committed secularist. This is the materialist. God's kingdom is not built on this soil. The next two soils are similar. They demonstrate some evidence of conversion, but ultimately, they're not any better than the first soil. They prove to be unfruitful for the kingdom, therefore, not of the kingdom at all. In verses 16 and 17, we see the soil on rocky ground. The soil represents a heart that is fearful of persecution for the faith. A rocky soil does not allow seeds to create roots. This is also an unbelieving heart. This person may apparently embrace Christianity. It is possible to embrace Christianity out of appearances only. But when they realize there's a cost to discipleship, they forsake the faith. When they realize that Christianity will cost them their friendships, when they realize that Christianity will cost them social capital, when they realize that Christianity will cost them the ability to advance in their professional career, when they realize that the world actually hates Jesus and those who follow him, they abandon the faith. Do they fall away? No. Their faith never created roots. They were never of the faith. In verses 18 and 19, we see the soil among the thorns. This represents a heart that is enamored, in love with the world. The soil leaves no room for the seed to sprout. And the soil shows evidence of no regeneration. No gospel fruits. This is also an unbelieving heart. Like the rocky ground, this person may show an appearance of Christianity. This person might have been brought up at church. This person might have prayed a prayer. This person might have walked down an aisle. This person might have even publicly professed their faith through baptism. But this person does not love God. This person loves the world. Friends, we all know those who correspond to these soils, don't we? They may be very close to us. And Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, he is helping us discern with incredible clarity who is and who is not a part of his kingdom. And we must not be confused here because if a bad soil is considered good, 
friends, we'll feel no urgency for evangelism. We'll feel no urgency to bring the word of the gospel to those whom we love. So it is better to embrace the truth and know that God can do something about it than to reject the truth and find out later that the truth can cost, can be very, the rejection of the truth can be very costly. Kingdom of God is not made up of those who receive the seed or even show apparent growth because of the seed. No, friends, the kingdom of God is made up of those who receive the seed, that is the gospel, who respond to the seed with faith and repentance and who produce fruit in keeping with the kingdom of God. Now, the fruit is not the base of salvation. The fruit is the result of salvation. The kingdom of God is made up of those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ and as the result of hearing that, they hope in the cross where sins are paid for. As a result of receiving the word, they believe it. They turn from their way and they pursue Christ with their entire lives. They long to share in the spirit of Christ. The kingdom of God is made up of people who love God's people. They can't wait to gather Sunday after Sunday and worship the one true God. They love the church. They progressively find victory over sin. They love the word of God. They love the work of God. They love God. They love God's people. Friends, assurance of salvation is not warranted simply because somebody prayed a prayer 30 years ago. Assurance of salvation is not warranted simply because somebody walked down an aisle 15 years ago. Assurance of salvation is not warranted simply because someone even was baptized 10 years ago. Friends, the Bible has no category for someone who is in the kingdom of God and produces no kingdom fruit. It is impossible for us to meet the God of the universe and not be transformed. It is impossible for us to have Christ be born in our hearts and not produce fruits of regeneration. Don't be confused. Assurance of salvation is warranted when someone receives the gospel and is then able to observe the result of the gospel that is received, fruit. And this leads us to our last soil. In verse 20, we see the good soil. This soil represents those who believe the gospel. This soil receives the seed and provides for it an environment where the seed can grow. This soil bears fruit. Jesus says that the yields of the fruit would be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom will progressively produce more and more fruits. He is telling his disciples not to be confused about the small scale of the kingdom of God in its inception. The kingdom of God will begin in an unassuming way, but you will grow. And as the redeemed citizens of this kingdom bear fruits, this kingdom will advance. And friends, 
we are part of this kingdom. Brothers and sisters, members of Central Baptist Church, you are a citizen of this kingdom. We are the good soil. We bear fruit. So let me close today with just a few words of advice. Friend, if you have not heeded the message of the kingdom, today is the day the Lord is calling you to enter his kingdom. How can you do that? The kingdom of God has one door. On one side, you read the word faith. And on the other side, you read the word repentance. You must believe Jesus Christ as the Lord over his kingdom. You must believe he is who he says he is, and you must also believe you are who he says he is, a sinner in need of salvation. But Jesus came into this world to save sinners. If you want to know more about Jesus and his kingdom and how you can forsake your kingdom and enter his, at the end of the service, you can talk to me. Uh, Gary and Debbie Tuggle are going to be standing right here at the end of the service, and they'll be glad to talk to you about what it means to receive Jesus as your Savior. Brothers and sisters from Central Baptist Church, we build the kingdom of God and not our own kingdom. Day in and day out, the most pressing question we must ask is how can I die to my own kingdom and live for Christ's kingdom day in and day out we must ask the question how do I make Christ known how do I show preference to my brother and sister rather than myself how can, I, how can I help my brother's ministry flourish and not pursue my own interests? Even as we gather tonight to discuss our budget, how do we keep the kingdom of God in mind and not my own? That is the question that must be pressing in our hearts at all times. It is His kingdom we build. Friends, let's, not, let's be honest here. We often want to build our kingdom. I do. I know you do too. But God is so good. He shows the wonders of his kingdom to us. And he calls us, come build my kingdom. Because your kingdom will not enter eternity. But in my kingdom, you experience pleasures at my right hand forevermore. Friends, we live we die, we're forgotten. We're nothing. That's the pattern of everyone's life. But the kingdom of God is everything. Let us live for it. His kingdom is forever. Would you pray with me? Father, how we want to progressively, day by day, Lord, die to ourselves and find ourselves alive in Christ. Lord, help us not build a kingdom that has our name in it. Help us resist that temptation. Help us resist 
the world that wants to tell us it's all about self. It is not. It is all about you. May Central Baptist Church, day by day, build the kingdom of God through the preaching of the word, through the proclamation of Christ, and in that way alone. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.